invite you to take your Bibles with me, open them to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16 this morning, Gospel of Luke chapter 16, we are now officially kind of in the latter portion of this Gospel, I guess that really doesn't matter much, does it? Um, Because that doesn't say how long we'll be here, but uh, maybe there's a little light at the end of the tunnel for some of us, for some of you, that we're in the last at least quarter of the Gospel of Luke. But, uh, the last few passages are weighty, because Luke's wanting to get everything in. And so, um, we come to some heavier truths towards the end of this, uh, this book. Today, in Luke chapter 16, I'm nervous. Because we come to one of the most, really, I think, the most difficult parable of our Lord. You know, I was telling some of you this week, it's never a good deal when you're sitting down to study a passage and you study it and you realize it's not making sense to me. And then you start opening commentaries and resources and you realize it doesn't make sense to anybody. And so we're all navigating in the dark here and your commentators writing books and scholars and theologians, they all start their understanding, interpretation of this passage saying, I really don't know what it says. And so you're, you're left saying, well, I hope I'm hitting in the right area. And, and that's the goal today, to hit in the right area, to pull out some of the truths that we know are truths in this text. Maybe not major on the details today, uh, but nonetheless try to tie it all in in a nice, pretty bow fashion where it might make sense. That's the goal anyways. It makes sense in my mind. I hope it'll make sense for all of us. The reason this parable is so difficult is because it's so unique. Christ really doesn't share another parable like this uh, anywhere else. Um, Most of his parables are like what we've encountered in Luke 15. Uh, They're allegorical in nature, symbolic. Uh, There's a lesson to be learned that is pretty clear overall that we can pull out. Uh, This one, not so much. Throughout Christ's ministry, we've seen him share parables where he takes a negative uh, action or a negative individual and then kind of brings it to a positive. We just saw that with the parable of the prodigal son, right? A a negative, significantly scornful younger son is resolved and and loved and brought back in by the father. But in this parable, there is no resolve. There is no um, restoration. There's just a very morally ungodly individual in Christ at the end says, learn from him. And so we're left scratching our heads in a lot of ways saying, what is there to learn? Because he's so opposite of who you are. And yet you're commending him and you're you're sharing a negative truth, not just of a negative action or individual, but a progressively worsening moral, morally sinful individual. And then you come to the end and you say, there's a lesson here. For him, and we're left saying, What's the lesson? Now, on the surface, it's very, very difficult to dissect and understand. And yet, Christ shares it. And you've heard me say many times before as we walk through the Gospel of Luke, especially the parables, that our Lord is a master teacher, isn't he? He's precise in all of his words. None of them are out of place. And yet, if he would allow me some sarcasm and frankness, he kind of seems to lose his mind in this one. It doesn't connect. The dots don't 
don't mesh. There's no fluid flow of thought on the surface level. It seems rather choppy. With all those difficulties in mind, though, I do think we're able to discern what our Lord is saying without getting hung up on the things that seem contradictory. Now, it needs to go without saying, but I should say it anyways. Our Lord in this parable is not contradicting anything He's ever said. It perfectly fits in with His teaching about God. Although, as we encounter this morally bankrupt individual, um, it may seem contradictory in some parts. Overall, this parable is going to be dealing with things like money, uh, how we spend our money as Christians. It's going to be dealing with things like loyalty, dedication, and I think even ultimately discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does that look like? I think that's the point uh, of this text. Discipleship is consuming. And it changes everything of how we view the world and how we live in it and how we interact. In fact, Christ invades every detail of our lives so that we're different from everybody else, right? Isn't that the goal of discipleship and sanctification? Being set apart. Look with me in Luke 16, verse 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13. And I'll just kind of give you a clue. I'll just tell you the answer. Verse 13 is really going to be the ultimate culminating point. Choose who you're going to belong to, really. Choose who you're going to serve. Choose what you're going to be like. Choose what you're going to do. Let's read this text and kind of get through the difficulty and then we'll come back and walk through it. Chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if, you've, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, And who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
Let's walk through the parable portion of this passage first. Verses 1 through the first part, first half of verse 8. And I really just want to give you a running commentary because I don't want to, don't want to get bogged down in some of the details. Look in verse 1, and there is an important point here before you actually get into the, the narrative portion of the parable. It's who Jesus is addressing. It's the disciples. Now, what's intriguing about that is if you remember back into chapter 15, very encouraging, very warm, friendly, loving chapter. Right on the, the heels comes chapter 16. And chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, we remember why he's sharing these three parables in chapter 15. They're the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the prodigal son, all dealing with God's relationship with sinners and how, how he deals with them and welcomes them and loves them. In the first two parables, he's pursuing the lost sheep and the lost coin and the parable of the prodigal son. He's welcoming back, forgiving and loving the wayward son. And all because in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 15, he's spending time with tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees and scribes are grumbling. And so he says to the Pharisees and scribes these three parables. Their complaint is that this man receives sinners and eats with him, eats with them. So Jesus shares those wonderful parables about God's relationship to sinners with sinners, unbelievers. Then you look in chapter 16, verse 14, and although he's sharing this parable with the disciples, the Pharisees chime in again. They're listening, they're still present, and they hear what Jesus says to his disciples. And in verse 14 of chapter 16, they speak up. Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And so this parable in chapter 16, the opening verses, is bookended and sandwiched by Jesus interacting with the Pharisees. And it's all in the same context, the same sitting, the same situation. It's lesson, 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 right after another. And right in between them, he breaks from addressing unbelievers to addressing His disciples. Which tells us this is a distinctly Christian-intended passage of Scripture. It's not intended for the Pharisees, although they hear, and Christ is going to capitalize on that. It's directed to those who are following Him, who profess faith in Him, who want to belong to Him and honor Him with their lives. It's not meant for anyone else. That's why Luke would also say in verse 1, he also said to the disciples. It's this transition in the context. If we can allow ourselves to sit with Jesus and the disciples and the crowd of people listening to him teach, we realize he's just cut the end of one teaching to teach something else. That's where we come to in verse 1. Now we encounter this manager. Your Bible heading, mine does in the ESV version. Most Bible headings will call this man the dishonest manager. The only time we see that is in verse 8. He's referenced as that. But he is, no doubt, dishonest. Like I said earlier, he's a morally bankrupt individual. He's unrighteous and sinful and progressively so. So charges are brought. The master obviously believes them. Talk about that in a little bit. But this man has such a reputation and pattern that the charges brought against him are believable. Some, some people, when someone makes an accusation against them, you say, I know that person. That's not them. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. The master knows his manager. And when a charge is 
of embezzlement is brought to him, he says, that's probably true. So this is a, an unrighteous, a dishonest individual. And what's so strange is that Jesus makes him the main character. He's the focal point. In fact, everything hinges around him. And again, he progressively gets worse in his actions and deeds. Now, I do need to point this out. As some people have tried to uh, understand and discern this parable, they've tried to explain away the manager's actions so that the parable would make sense. So they've made it a highly symbolic or allegorical kind of parable. Trying to take the unrighteous actions of the manager and spin them and morph them in such a way that they might be uh, morally sound or okay, ethically okay. And there's the lesson that we have to dig down in through and, and find the hidden, hidden secrets of, of what's being taught. That's not what's happening in this parable. Christ is intentionally painting a very bleak individual here, very sinful individual here, for that very reason. As we'll see later, this man's unrighteousness is going to matter in Christ's point of the parable in verse 9 and in verse 8. That's the point of the whole parable, those two passages, two verses. And so we don't want to neglect, we don't want to explain away this unrighteous actions, these unrighteous actions by this individual because they're actually crucial to the parable. Which also somewhat makes it difficult. When we come to a difficult text of Scripture, we want to kind of ignore the difficulties and keep going on. Christ is intentionally telling us about a very ungodly individual. That's who this man is. We find in verse 1, the charge that's brought against him, the initial charge, is that he's wasting his master's possessions. Intriguingly enough, the word wasting is the exact same word found in chapter 15, verse 13, for squandering. So, the younger son squanders his father's property in reckless living. In chapter 16, verse 1, this manager is squandering the possessions of his master. The disciples are making these kinds of connections. But unlike the younger son, there's not going to be restoration. There's not going to be self-appraisal. There's not going to be the coming to yourself in verse 17 of chapter 15. There's going to be a continued progression of, of sin. So that this man will be found cheating his master. He'll be found lying. He'll be found in charges of embezzlement. He'll be found in defrauding and manipulating and even lording himself over others. Verse 2, as I said, the master obviously believes the charges. There's not even a chance for the manager to refute the claims. He just calls him before him. says, what's this I hear about you? You're done. Turn in the account of your management. You're no longer allowed to be manager. That also ties somewhat back into the prodigal son. As the older brother levies the charges against the younger son in verse 30, the father responds to him in kindness and love and warmth. As charges are levied against this guy, this dishonest manager, his master gives him no love, no warmth, no opportunity. He ends his employment. Although he doesn't end it immediately. He gives him a little bit more time, doesn't he? Get things in order. Present to me an account of all that you've done. 
and you will no longer be manager. Instead of doing what the master wants, however, he uses this time for his personal gain. Still presumably has access to the master's records, the master's house, the master's office, and the master's debtors. I mean, he didn't take the keys away immediately. He discovers those debtors, and he thinks, I'm going to utilize this to my advantage. This is where he begins to cheat even further. Verse 3, we find his selfish concern is solely about himself and solely about his well-being and his future. He doesn't care about his reputation. He doesn't care about good works. He doesn't care about his master. He cares about his security. Notice what he asks, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I don't believe him. Anybody's strong enough to dig. I think he's too proud. Pride prevents him from honest work and honest labor. I realize for a moment there, at least, that a lot of people are very creative in avoiding honest work and not very creative in doing honest work. This guy is going to be creative to avoid an honest way of living. Verse 4, we don't really get the true sense in the English of what Luke says or the parable, what what he reports to us. In verse 4, the English is just, I have decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their house. The literal meaning though is, aha, I've got it. It's come to me. The light switch has has turned on. The light bulb is is there. It's clicking. It's this uh, profound realization that he's exclaiming forth in joy. So what he's about to do is a joyful moment for him because he knows his future will be secure in what he's going to do. Again, we see his selfishness, don't we? His concerns are for himself only. I repeat that because that's key to understanding this parable, I believe. Ultimately, this dishonest manager doesn't want people in debt to his master. He wants people in debt to himself so that he might lord it over them, have a place to go, be received into their houses. So, verse 5, 6, and 7, we find what he does. He summons his master's debtors one by one. Now, there's two examples given here. I personally think there are more debtors than just the two, but even if there are just the two, there's enough for us to understand how this guy's working and what he's, what he's thinking. Now, whether he's still looking through the files and the master's allowing him a little leniency to look through the files and find the debtors, or whether the news just hasn't reached the debtors of the master, either way, he's approaching them each individually and he's defrauding his master. He comes to the first and says, how much do you owe? And I'm not going to get down, bogged down here with the measurements. Just suffice it for me to say to you that these are several years worth of earnings and wages that are owed to the master. And the first individual in verse 6 says, I owe him a hundred measures of oil. The manager says, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. And he does the same thing to the next guy who owes wheat. He says, write 80. What he's presumably doing here is cutting off the interest of the master's loans. So that the master is only getting back what he loaned. He's not making a profit off of this ordeal. That, therefore, would ensure his safety. Because he saved 
these, de- these debtors significant amounts of money. And so one day he would say, hey, I showed you a favor. I'm calling, calling it due. You show me a favor. You allow me to live with you. You allow me to eat with you. You pay my bills. What he does in verse 5, 6, and 7 means significant losses for his master. Perhaps they are the most outrageous and bold acts of embezzlement he's ever committed. They are large sums of resources. You notice in verse 6 how he tells the first debtor, sit down quickly. He has an inclination that what he's doing isn't right. Is wrong. It's not going to be received well. Nevertheless, he does it anyways. Well, we come to verse 8 finally. Which is where we begin to understand this parable. Verse 8, we get one of the most shocking statements given in any of Christ's parables. It's a reversal of all that's expected. And we've seen Jesus do that. We've seen Him do that as recently as chapter 15 with the prodigal son, right? How, how significantly scornful that son is to his father is a reversal of expectations of behavior among family members. But this one, this one is absurd. It's outrageous. Everybody listening, the disciples and the Pharisees, who here would have been expecting the master to be irate, right? Frustrated, angry. That's the normal response to such behavior. Perhaps legal action is coming. Perhaps revenge is now in the master's heart. But that's not what Jesus says. In verse 8, despite what everybody would do, or what everyone would assume should be done, the master commended the dishonest manager, for his shrewdness. That that statement, I have a hard time computing those words put together to make one, one statement. But that's what Christ says. The Master, for some reason, literally praises the dishonest manager for his actions. We have to ask the question, why? Why such a reversal of expectation? Why does the Master commend Him? What's to be learned from this? Well, it's important to note the Master commended not the dishonesty of the manager, but His shrewdness. We don't use that word shrewd much anymore in our language. But what it means here in this context is wise and diligent. He he praises the dishonest manager not for his immoral choices and actions, but for his diligence to secure his future. Now presumably we have two unbelievers interacting here. And one unbeliever looks to another unbeliever and says, hey, i got to give it to you. I don't like what you did. And I'm, I'm going to feel the losses. But I got to hand it to you. You were creative. You were action oriented. You were diligent. And you did what was necessary to provide for yourself. 
you formed a plan for your future and you worked it out. And we can't deny that, can we? As sinful as this manager is, and as sinful as his actions are, we can't deny that he was very creative and gung-ho about taking care of himself, taking care of his future. He doesn't know the future any more than you and I do. But he knew just about as much as you and I do about our futures. He knew that he was no longer going to be manager and he had to do something about it. You and I know things about our future. Things like heaven and hell. Things like Christ coming back. How do we handle those things? Do we handle them like the dishonest manager handled his temporary future? That's the question Christ is posing to us in this parable. We come to the second part of verse 8. And we find the interpretation. And we don't know who's speaking here. We don't know if this is Luke clarifying the parable and making a transition to the next teaching of Christ. Because we know clearly in verse 9, Jesus is speaking. We don't know if at the end of verse 8, Jesus is speaking as the Master in the parable, continuing the lesson, or if Jesus is speaking as Jesus. All of those do matter, whether you think they do or not. But this is what it says at the end of verse 8. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. It's a positive statement. I mean, those are positive terminology there, positive language, but it's really a negative statement, isn't it? It's meant to be a chastising statement, a, a subtly shameful statement to the sons of light. There's a contrast being drawn there in verse 8 between the sons of the world and the sons of light and dealing with the future, how each deal with it. And it's not good for the sons of light. This is actually a heavy and rather convicting interpretation of the parable. And this is why it matters that we don't explain away the dishonest manager's actions, as sinful as they are. Because verse 8, Jesus intends to draw the contrast. If a sinful, dishonest manager so diligently works for a very temporary and vain future, how come the sons of light don't do the same? It is a heavy question. A convicting question. Do we think and live in light of our eternal future and eternal matters as diligently and significantly and action-oriented as this dishonest manager does? Christ is looking at His disciples and He's saying ungodly, worldly people care far more about vain, temporary things than you do about your eternity and about eternal matters that you do know. The sons of this world, they're more wise, they're more diligent, they're more purposeful, they're more dedicated in dealing with their own generation to take care of their future than the sons of light are. Sons of the world, they certainly pursue different things than Christians do, don't they? We're not pursuing the same things as this dishonest manager. 
And yet, he pursues those things of his with more zeal, more desire, more dedication than Christians who know of the godly things that they should pursue. Makes this parable heavy and convicting, like I said. We have eternal matters before us. We know what the future holds in terms of eternity. We know people, some of whom are going to heaven to be with the Lord, praise God, and most of whom are not going there. And we know that. It's been promised that there will come a day of judgment and people will be divided. And yet, in light of that certain understanding of future events, we don't act even in a fraction according to the the ways this dishonest manager does. Right. Matters of godliness and matters of sanctification and matters of eternity are uh, secondary in a lot of ways as we walk through this life. In fact, as we consider this parable, we find ourselves more so identifying with the dishonest manager, don't we? Maybe not in our practices, but in the things that we care about. Temporary matters, not eternal matters. I had my class reunion last night, 10 years, can you believe it? 10 years, some of you chuckle. We had a great time last night, catching up with friends, laughing, telling stories. When I got home though, I began thinking over the evening, thanking the Lord for some of my friendships, some of the discussion that we had. And then I got really frustrated with myself. Because in the midst of the conversations and the laughter and catching up, all of those good things, in the midst of all of that, the Lord started bringing to my mind and I started realizing each opportunity I missed to share the gospel. You know, I had an easy platform. People came up and said, what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. Let me tell you about Jesus. It would have been that easy. A lot of them knew that. A lot of them said, hey, where are you pastoring now? And you know what? I didn't capitalize on those opportunities. And you know why? I was caught up. Caught up telling stories and laughing and good things. Socializing, right? I'm going over my notes this morning, frustrated from last night, and I'm thinking, Lord, this text is describing me. I get caught up in temporary, vain, worldly, present time things. And we don't think about eternal matters. We're prone to that, right? It's not natural for us to think in, in terms of eternity and sharing the gospel. There's one individual there last night. It was so obvious, reflecting back. If anybody had ever pitched a softball to me of sharing the gospel, it would have been this guy last night. and I missed it. Most often, we are like the dishonest manager, concerned about things that in 10,000 years aren't going to matter. I think that's what Christ is getting at at the end of verse 8. Are you as diligent about eternal matters as this guy was, even in his sinfulness about temporary matters? And again, I highlight the sinfulness factor because if a sinful, unregenerate, unbelieving heart can care about something and pursue something with such zeal and such dedication, and it's something that will not and does not matter, why aren't we? Why aren't we? We know of heaven. We know of our reward in heaven. 
And we know of the need for conversions. We ought to be people zealous for such things. There is no joy that compares with walking with the Lord in obedience and in His mission of furthering the kingdom. We ought to be zealous to go to such lengths as this man did. Not sinful lengths like he did, but such lengths to secure what we know is coming. Well, verse 9, Jesus gives the instruction. He interprets in verse 8 the point of the parable. Then He begins to instruct. And in verse 9, He says, I tell you, He's bro- broken from the parable there, clearly speaking as Himself, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Lord, I've been trying to bribe people to be my friends for a long time. It doesn't work. That's not what he's saying. The word friends there can mean converts. The Bible uses different analogies to refer to the church and and, uh, new believers. Most often, frequently, we see the terms body and we see the term family in Scripture. We're a family. We're a body. It's just as right to say we're friends. So when he refers to friends here, he's referencing brothers and sisters in Christ. Make brothers and sisters in Christ for yourselves. And here's the means to do it. Unrighteous wealth. That always grabbed my attention there because I I didn't really understand it. But he's not saying wealth that's gained unrighteously. That's an important distinction. It's a way to describe the wealth. The wealth is unrighteous. It's not gained unrighteously, but wealth, in a general principle, money is unrighteous. We know that. The Bible's clear on that. It's corrupting, isn't it? It grips us in ways that we shouldn't be gripped. We care more about it often than we do people. We live in a standard and a context and a country that puts such enormous values on it. Even among believing brothers and sisters, sometimes we get caught up in this temptation to have more money than the next person it doesn't matter jesus says take that which is not good can be corrupting money and invest it in what matters spend it for gospel agendas for the kingdom for kingdom growth church that is so unnatural to us we are so prone to hoard it to ourselves to enhance our own lives, aren't we? Christ is saying, no, I'm I'm calling you to something different. And this is why I think this parable is about discipleship. Because following Jesus means everything in your life is now different from the rest of the world where it should be. How we spend our money is different. What we do with our resources is different. You and I, we are no longer living for retirement. We're no longer saving up to have the nicest house on the block or the newest car or the next biggest, nicest phone or the the newest clothes, most expensive clothes. We're not spending our money to make ourselves look good anymore. We're spending our money, our time, our efforts, our resources for the Gospel. We're giving ourselves for the Gospel, for the Kingdom to go forth. So that, Jesus says, when it fails, the money, when that runs out, when it ceases to be and to provide, 
they, those friends that you make, may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Spend everything you have on what's really going to matter most in eternity so that when you get there, you experience wealth beyond measure. Wealth beyond what you're going to realize. Reward, joy, fellowship with the body. Perfect fellowship. The end of Psalm 1 says, in the congregation of the righteous, there will be no unrighteous anymore. God's going to clean out the congregation, clean out the family. So there will be no wolves and imposters anymore. That's what the Lord is saying here. But it's never just about money, is it? Anytime the Bible teaches on that, it's always about the heart. In fact, we can pluck out money here, wealth, and start putting in other things. Use your talents, your gifts, your possessions, the connections you make, your time, your major, your career, whatever it may be. Use it to invest in eternal matters. Use it to invest in the Gospel going forth so that friends might be made and you might rejoice with them in eternity eternity, and worship the Lord with them in eternity. It's never just about money. It's always about self. And this isn't just a sermon that could be about tithing. In fact, it's not a sermon about tithing. It's a sermon about your heart. Because ultimately, what we come down to in verse 8 and 9 is Jesus asking His disciples, what do you care about? Really, what do you care about? This dishonest manager cared about things that we look and say are so frivolous. And he's willing to go to great lengths to secure that. What do you care about that you're willing to go to great lengths for? And Christ would tell us as our Lord and our Savior, care about making friends even by means of unrighteous wealth so that they be converted and you know true joy and true wealth in the life to come. Discipleship is wholehearted and it touches every area of our lives, even in how we spend our money. We don't spend it on us anymore. We're not hoarding it to enhance our lives. We're spending it so that the Gospel might go forth. I uh, read an article. Well, I didn't read the article. I just read the headline. I didn't care to read the article once I saw the headline. About an NFL player uh, this week. I don't remember the guy. Um, but the headline of the article was a quote that he had made. And then it had a sub-headline explaining that quote. And he said in the headline, his quote, Whoever said money doesn't buy happiness lied. And then the subheadline was he signs a four-year contract for $60 million. He doesn't know this verse. That money will fail. And you and I know why that headline is outrageous. Because only true treasure and joy is found in Christ. And spending yourself and your money and your time and your efforts and your energies for Christ and joining Him in the mission of the kingdom going forth, and the gospel being proclaimed, and souls being converted, that's true joy. Not retirement. Not a new car. Not a new house. Not a bigger bank account than your 10-year class reunion. None of those things. It's joining Christ. Walking with Christ. Belonging to Jesus. That's true joy. 
I would hope that we would treasure Christ so much more than money that it becomes a true joy for us to give our money away for His glory. Not just our money, but again, ourselves. We would treasure Christ so much that we would say with Paul, I'll even lay down my own life for Jesus. That we would care enough about the glory of God and the good news of the Gospel that we would also say in Philippians 3.8 with Paul, I count everything as lost and surpassed in comparison to knowing the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus my Lord. Well, real quick, bear with me. The application of this parable is verses 10-13. through 13. Christ makes His disciples reflect. And in verse 10, He shares one of His most well-known um, sayings about life and character. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. That would have been a, a good right hook to the disciples' egos. Because faithfulness doesn't depend upon circumstances, it depends upon character. Your faithfulness to handle things and handle things that matter depend upon your heart. And verse 11, If then you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, which will perish, which doesn't last, which is temporary, then who will entrust to you the true riches? That's a frightening question, isn't it? If I don't even handle myself in this world for the glory of God and the sake of the Gospel, why is God going to entrust me with the true riches of heaven? Now that's not talking about salvation. That's talking about some of the benefits and bonuses of walking with Christ in a faithful way, such as witnessing conversions. Being a part of sharing the Gospel and seeing people saved. Watching people grow. Seeing the church transformed and be healthy. All of those inner workings that Christ only accomplishes by Himself but allows us to witness and be a part of in some small way. Those are the true riches that should matter most to us. And he says if you can't even handle something as vain and temporary as money, why would you get to be a part of the true riches? Verse 12, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, because even unrighteous wealth belongs to God, then who will give you that which is your own? Because in reality, the true riches of heaven are supposed to be our own. They're our gifts. And yet, if we can't be trusted with them, we miss out. And then verse 13, as I said at the beginning, the culminating point here, our memory verse for the quarter, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That verse is very self-explanatory, but man, so profound, isn't it? Simple but profound. That is a characteristic of Jesus. No one can serve God and money, or God and self, or God and retirement, or God and bank account, or God and clothes, or God in a new car. Whatever your goals and pursuits are that take place and elevate themselves above God, you're choosing them over God. And it's as plain and as simple as that. Christ is telling us, since you cannot serve two masters, God and money, spend your money for the glory of God. 
not for the advancement of self. As I thought through just that phrase alone, I thought to myself, man, money is like our God often. For me, it is. It occupies too much of my attention. Sometimes we act like it matters more to us than Jesus does. We, we behave again just like the dishonest manager. We spend more time even in the church talking about ways to raise funds or prepare to be better financial stewards. And the Bible doesn't minimize being a good, wise steward of the things God gives you, but it's never to take place over the salvation of the lost. Our reputation shouldn't take precedent over that. Our influence, even our privacy shouldn't take precedence over the salvation of the lost. We're called to give it all up that people may hear and be saved. Like that NFL player, the world says your happiness will be found in hoarding as much of this as you can. Jesus says your happiness will be found in giving it all for My name's sake. Even your life. Well, Jerry doesn't like it when I say this, but I'm going to say it anyways. In closing, a person does with his or her treasure what their heart cares most about. If your heart cares about self, your treasure will be spent on self. If your treasure is Christ, your heart will be, uh, your your resources will be spent on Christ. And I pray that we would be so delighted in our Lord that we would say, "Money doesn't even come close." Whatever He has to say, and however He has to lead, and whatever He wants to do with it, I'll do it. You know, Christ spent Himself for us on the cross, didn't He? He gave the greatest treasure. He gave the most that anybody would ever give that we might know a greater treasure. Namely, Himself. So that we wouldn't be captive any longer to worthless and temporary things. We now, through Christ and His sacrifice on the cross, have life and liberty. And heaven. And ultimately we have Jesus Himself, right? Don't be like the dishonest manager. Sinful, morally bankrupt, and chasing after vain things. But be like Him in His diligence to secure what mattered to Him. And what should matter to us is Jesus. And the Gospel and the kingdom going forth. And we ought to be giving ourselves for that reason because Christ gave Himself for us. That we might know the true joy of walking with Christ, belonging to Christ, and joining Christ in ministry. Lord, sometimes our words just don't um, don't convey what needs to be conveyed. And that means that at all times we are dependent upon You. We're dependent upon You right now. This morning, Lord. If You don't apply this Word of Yours to our hearts, it's, um, it's worthless. If it just sits in our head, it's not going to do much. If you don't connect the dots for us to even see how this parable works together, 
it's going to be confusing. So we ask that you would work as you did with Paul and Barnabas. We ask that you would bear witness to your word. That you would help it to resonate within our hearts. To see its truth. To live by it. To know what true treasure in you really is. Lord, as we looked at verse 14, these Pharisees understood that this parable was in some way about money. But they failed to see that you are the greater treasure than money. Help us to see and not fail to realize that you are our great delight and satisfaction. And because of that, we don't have to chase the vain, ghostly pursuits of this world. We can live and invest in eternal matters and an eternal future. Help us to see. In Jesus' name, amen.